0: Welcome to the Teeny
1: is just again again
0: Uh, You already uh, mentioned it in short, but I have a following question. I believe that uh, one of the key things about uh, diversity is how we define it in order to help policymakers, uh, technologists uh, to come up with uh, some solutions uh, to solve uh, challenges we face every day. How do you define uh, diversity as a term, as a philosophy for yourself? How uh, could you define it?
1: That's a great question. And... I, I, you know, I, I don't have a textbook definition in front of me, but in front of me, but the way I think about it is a person is not diverse, only groups are diverse. And so every new person that you add to the group, depending on what aspects of identity they bring into that group will either add diversity or they will not add diversity. So for example, if you have a group that is all women, to me, that is not diverse, but if you bring those women which you know in certain contexts are seen as a minority group into a broader corporate sphere that used to be majority male, they are adding diversity to the whole context of that group. So, so yeah. So I think it's important, at least for me, when I look at diversity, when I look at diversity, it's not a person. It's actually what does the group as a whole look like? And in our work at Diversibility, you know, I acknowledge that we live in a non-disabled world. We live in a world that is catered toward. People that that is not catered toward people who have disabilities. So when we are able to add disabled people to those conversations, we are a- able to add a layer of diversity to those conversations.
0: Uh, I believe that in order to build diversity, uh, diversibility project, uh, you uh, aggregated many experiences, uh, lessons, both your personal lessons and lessons uh, of your community. What type of biases? Uh, you usually uh, faced in your life, and what kind of biases you believe uh, mostly uh, still exist in our today uh, society?
1: I think that's a great question. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge intersectionality in this in the answer to my in, in the answer to this question. So you know on the on I am a disabled Asian woman. And it's hard for me to compartmentalize those identities in terms of, biases that I have faced. I have noticed people make comments to me based on my Asian identity, you know, in as part of the growing women's movement, you know, we have all acknowledged the gender pay gap. Um, And then as a disabled person, I think that, you know, I feel like I face bias on a daily basis. And it may not be directed to me, but it is directed to the identities that I represent. But, you know, it's interesting the way I answered this, I did kind of compartmentalize it, but it's hard because when I step out into the world, it's not like I'm choosing like today, this is my day to like be a woman or today, this is my day to be a person of color or to be a disabled person. I'm carrying all of these experiences with me. And I think that being able to kind of like acknowledge and create space for that and the fact that oppression is compounded when you wear multiple oppressed identities, um, that makes the bias sometimes hit even harder.
0: Uh, now, I would love to talk about diversity Project and Universities. Um, As I know, initially it was created uh, as a university project. So I have a following question. I I deal with uh, many mostly technology teams that came from a university uh, background, uh, ecosystem, incubators, accelerators. And one thing uh, I feel that universities today is a kind of a incubators um of of the new ideas uh because when people go through the corporate world we just uh, are okay to live with biases with all conformity but on the university level we all we're uh more free to be ourselves we incubate what we truly love so many uh Actually, scientific technology stuff I see mostly on university level. So my question is: How your university experience affected your idea of creation of diversibility project? What what kind of experiences or maybe like-minded people, cases, situation you faced or find out and use in this project?
1: I I loved viewing university and and ha- so. I, I just felt like, so I went to Georgetown and I felt like at Georgetown, it was a place for you to experiment. Um, and what I mean by that is you had you had a lot of resources and support at your disposal. So not only did you have the professors, you had access to booking rooms, you had access to applying for different grants, for food for your events and and you, you had a, and you also had an active community of people who are passionate about social justice, at least at Georgetown, a lot of people were really involved in, you know, being parts of different types of movements. And so I, I actually can't imagine a more supportive environment to give ourselves permission to fail is what I'll say, give ourselves permission to experiment. And so when, when I first started DiverseAbility, I DiverseAbility, I was also involved in a Taiwanese American club Uh, university club and someone from the Taiwanese American club offered to help us come up with DiverseAbility's logo. You know, he had no, he had no connection to DiverseAbility, but because we had been part of this other identity group, he wanted to help out. And I just remember being a one-woman show, posting up random flyers around campus with some email that it wasn't, it, it, my name wasn't even on. It was just like, hey, is this club that's launching email, diversibility at gmail.com. And then I started getting emails. And what was interesting was I actually started getting emails from people that I knew, but they didn't know that I was behind Diversability. But I wanted it, I wanted everyone who's a part of it to be co-creators of it. But I will say that what actually took Diversability from an idea into a reality was, we did apply for a small grant. It was called a Reimagine Georgetown Grant. And you could apply, you know, as the title says, for projects that would reimagine the campus. And I talked about how I really appreciated how our campus celebrated diversity in many ways, but was not acknowledging that disability was very much a part of this diversity conversation. And to be honest, the amount of our grant was very small. It was $500, um, but at the time, what was more important to me was the fact that the grant committee saw something in this idea. It wasn't just Tiffany parading around thinking that I had a good idea. It was actually having some external entity instill their vote of confidence in me. And I had spent, you know, at that time, it had been a little over 10 years after the car accident. I was really still on a journey of coming into my own space in terms of my self-worth and my self-esteem and my self-confidence. So to be able to have someone see me and see this idea for its potential, I think really is, is what helped what helped me. And then even now today, you know, one of DiverseAbility's projects or one of my projects is we award $1,000 microgrants monthly to disability projects. And the inspiration for that really came from Reimagine, our reimagined Georgetown grant, you know, being able to have someone, you know, money, money is great. I mean, I mean, we need money, of course, but sometimes I think being able to have that extra level of mentorship or that extra level of having external sources outside of your day to day, really believe in you can help, can help empower you. I mean, that's at the core of empowerment.
0: Uh, You've started your journey around uh, 209. Uh, with a mission uh, to rethink disability and perception of disability. How do you think? Um, how would you're able to uh, change perception of disability in your environment uh, Among your friends and maybe broader ecosystem like university corporate segment and someone who you know
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I'd, I always I will always cite dr. Vivian Ming when we talk about our work because Part, part of the neuroscience work that she had done was she has a statement that she says one of the best ways to tackle any type of bias is through real-life continuous experiences with people who challenge your stereotypes. And so for me, you know, I actually think what's really interesting about the journey of diversability is it really parallels my own. So when I came into diversability, I, you know, was very much looking at disability as a bad thing. Um, but what I realized and by meeting other people with disabilities is that I could be so proud in my identity. And I think what's interesting, you know, I'm looking at this question, like how, how have we affected how people think about disability? And it's through these real life interactions with people. So what's interesting is most of the time when people meet me for the first time, if it's in a professional context they will learn first about my disability advocacy work. They'll hear about the car accident. They'll hear about my disability origin story. They'll hear about the transformation in my story of how I became proud of my identity. But then as you get to know me, you know, now with some of my friends, I'm talking about dating, you know, I'm talking about what it's like to live with trauma and grief and what that journey looks like. And, you know, disability is very much intertwined in there, but now you're learning about all of the other parts of how colorful my life is right and i think if you know number one there's a danger in a single narrative there's a danger in only having that one disability narrative that we read about in the media or by watching some inspirational movie but i think to the extent that we can diversify all of the different disability narratives that are out there then we'll start looking at disability differently. you know. And, and one of the things that we've been discussing within our diversity community online is oftentimes we'll see journalists write about disability stories in terms of, this person did this despite their disability. But what about if we change that to, this person did this because of their disability identity? I mean, I look at all of the opportunities that I have been able to have, and I actually think all of them are because I'm disabled, <laughs> um, and and yeah, I mean, I think I think if I take a step back, a big part of it is you know we have this incredible diversity community, but I also know that I'm leading by example as well. So how can I you know wake up every single day and live the best life I can? And I get a lot of comments on Instagram from people who have similar injuries to mine curious about surgeries I've undergone or how, how I'm navigating, how I'm adapting. And oftentimes I just respond and I say, I like, this is my reality. Like my arm is paralyzed. Like this is a permanent disability. Like I'm not sick. Like there like, you know, there's some, there's a difference between being sick versus being permanently disabled when you're sick. Maybe you take some cold medicine or something, but when you're permanently disabled, like this is how my body is. And so how can I just live my best life in my body? And how can I live my best life because of the circumstances that have happened to me?
0: Um, I'm a part of your uh, Facebook group, and I would say it's very diverse. What geographies and type of uh, conditions your member uh, represent?
1: Yeah, so um, our... As I'm sure you've seen, our Facebook group is very loosely organized. You know, we have a couple moderators in there, but they're mainly just to help with engagement. You know, I think that when I it's interesting because when we when I first started organizing diversability events, we didn't have an online community. And then I realized that you know, there were ways that we could continue the conversations and continue to connect but do it in an online space. And our offline spaces have always been open to disabled and non-disabled people and our online space is also the same way so we're not asking anyone to disclose everyone is showing up as they are they're participating if they feel like it and they're lurkers if they feel like it as well Um, we are we are global but i will say most of the people in our group are u.s based or from the western world and in terms of types of disabilities represented within the group, again, very diverse. Um, I have noticed that there is a, a long, I guess, disability advocacy, I'm mainly seeing people who have physical disabilities, the, the most vocal. And of course, people who are neurodiverse also, I'm seeing that. but. Fewer, I guess, on the developmental and intellectual disability side, and there are organizations that are doing great work around that. And so it's like, how can we, yeah, how can we combine and help elevate all of our advocacy efforts and understand that the ultimate goal for all of us is inclusion. We may have different strategies for how we want to get there, but no matter what, um, as long as we're taking some kind of action, I think that it's good.
0: Um, I often see how you uh, involve your members in different kind of activities beyond just kind of empowerment. You suggest different kind of involvement, opportunities, sometimes even speaking opportunities, so you try to facilitate approach then Everyone is a leader. so even uh, someone is a parent or maybe some uh, person from community, you suggest to uh, speak somewhere. It's just an amazing. What kind of a, a typical opportunities you try to facilitate, what kind of your agenda plan or it just happen
1: occasionally? Yeah, so the biggest thing for me, one thing I've been talking a lot about is how can we democratize visibility? How can we democratize storytelling? Everyone deserves their story to be told. Everyone deserves that kind of platform. And, you know, one of the things oftentimes when I talk about diversity, I say like we're we're a connector and we're a talent incubator and um and then there's a third one that I can't remember now, but I, I think about how oftentimes, you know, when people come to DiverseAbility, they are they are looking to be empowered. They're looking to see how can I grow into my disability narrative or how can I find other opportunities to elevate the work that I'm already doing or this is, you know, the conversations that I'm having with them. So for us, yeah, I mean, DiverseAbility, it's not the Tiffany show. You know, if it were the Tiffany show, then... I I think it would have a different purpose. Like the only reason we exist is because we have a community and we have people like you who are launching this podcast and looking to kind of share stories. It, people like our corporate partners or conferences who are looking to diversify the types of speakers they're bringing to stages, even through our diversity events, it's always, you know, there's always a very big storytelling component to it. And I oftentimes try to think of, okay, who is someone who hasn't really had an opportunity to share their story within our community yet? And we try to do that through our, all of our social media platforms as well. So we've got a blog, you know, um, we've got a Twitter presence. Uh, We have our largest presence on Instagram, where now we're doing bi-monthly Instagram takeovers by, you know, we had an application process at the beginning of the year for people to kind of be able to do that. And honestly, I have loved following the takeovers. And it really, it has touched my heart to see how grateful our community members are to be able to have an opportunity like that. But in my mind, I'm just like, why wouldn't we? you know, and I think right now we are in a period of shelter in place and how can we use our digital presence and our visibility to help elevate people who are doing really great work or help elevate, you know, important conversations that need to be, ha- that need, yeah, that need to be happening.
0: Um, in my work, um, I had an opportunity to see power of, a- university campuses and students uh, as a facilitator of different kinds of uh, movements. Uh, Do you use uh, universities, do you collaborate universities or maybe students uh, to uh, spread some programs, maybe lectures, or maybe uh, use some kind of evangelist in order to spread your idea further, make it more self-organized?
1: yeah, that's a great question you know i think we have piloted with a few ideas around diversity ambassadors and um yeah i think we had a an, an inclusion pledge at one point in time and this is all in early stages and so we are trying to figure out how can we really build this community and create evangelists and does it need to happen in a formal way or can it happen in an informal way and so i think what's been interesting is You know, if you talk to anyone else in DiverseAbility, the way they talk about their experience in the community may be very different from how I talk about it. And I really love the the fact that they have taken ownership of their involvement within the community. But again, I think I've been, you know, and using the tech term, I, I feel very open source and wanna just like democratize everyone's membership in it. We've tried to do the formal things with ambassador programs. And, and ways to kind of formally get people involved. but I think I've really liked seeing the informal, more natural ways that people are connecting. And um, we have you know and then we had thought a lot of our partner a lot of our partner organizations will have like partner pages on their website and, and we, we thought about doing something like that too, but there are just so many, So many organizations that i think are doing good work that it would be you know uh, yeah it's kind of like how can i create a logo wall of all of the great organizations that have that have come through um and and I, i haven't yeah i haven't quite figured out that but yeah we we work with a number of incredible partner organizations they always know they have a direct line to me if not you know I'll connect them with Katie or, Katie or Nicole who are also on our team and do a lot of community and content based work but but yeah i mean we've got a really lean team and oh sorry the third thing so it was talent talent incubator connector and then ecosystem builder so i really see us as just like trying to to do everything we can to figure out how this ecosystem works. Because honestly, if you look at disability, it is, it's pretty siloed by your type of advocacy. So for example, you are on the tech side. And even within tech, you kind of have the people who are building the tech and the accessibility of it, but then you have the tech companies and employment, um, and that's a different thing. And then you have the people who are in the arts, like the dancers and the integrated dance communities, which are amazing. And then you have like the influencers and the entertainment people, and then you have academia and then you have law and then you have disability rights, you know, and it's, and it's just like, this is a very broad ecosystem that I feel like I have dipped my toe in a lot of different parts of it. How, yeah, how can we and, and right now I'm kind of just envisioning it right now of all these different bubbles with like loose dotted lines to each other just trying to float around figuring out and again coming back to this whole idea that the ultimate goal, you know, is creating this sense of inclusion and belonging for a community that has been historically not included.
0: It it sounds great, and it's actually really close uh, to how I usually uh, uh, see uh, my work, because then people ask me about uh, what I exactly do. I always say that uh, technology is my... uh, my key focus, but it's always encompassed by some kind of a intersection with the uh, creative stuff uh, because I've created some communities and I even create some music. It's pretty interesting. Uh, at the same time, I work in academia world with policy makers in corporate segment. So there's always some kind of interesting stuff that happen around and you need to experiment. It's all, it's always funny. Okay. Uh, My next question uh, is about assistive technology. It's a kind of uh, my key focus, um, and I really love to talk about it because there are so many problems. While uh, I face incredible teams in universities like MIT, Harvard, not so many actually able to survive because it's an extremely uh, risky place. Um, I would love to ask you, What kind of uh, feedback you could you you, uh, could deliver as a representative of your community? What People uh, with disability typically think about technology? What kind of challenges they face? Do we have a technology in a sister field with enough? Do we actually have a so called smart cities? Do we actually have uh, uh, things for people with visual impairment, hearing impairment, physical impairment? What help them to be adapted? Or it still fail based on your statistics, numbers and experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's a great question. You know, one of the things, one of the messages I definitely evangelize is the more disability centric we can be in whatever we're building, the better it will be. Because, right, and I think we're even seeing this now as we have turned to a more virtual world, is that applications like Zoom and, you know, some of the others are really trying to figure out. Um, I think Zoom has had some upgrades around its ability to include closed captioning. I think that, um, yeah, I, I think that's a great question, you know, so May 21st, I'm not sure when this episode is going to go live, but the, but the third Thursday of May has been declared global accessibility awareness day. And, um, Spearheaded by someone named Jennison and I think one of his colleagues, and he he founded a series of meetups group, a uh, meetup groups around inclusive design and accessible technology called A11y. And I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about Global ac- Global Accessibility Awareness Day and what we want to do if if we do anything. Um, and so one of the things we are doing is Project Hearing. Again, I'm not quite sure when this will go live, but Project Hearing, who is one of our friends headed by Mariella Paulino, is going to be hosting a workshop on how to caption your videos for social media. And I have participated in the first iteration of the workshop. I, I think she might record it so you can access it later or check out, I, I have posted it on our blog at DiverseAbility um, as, of, as of yesterday, yeah, it went live in May. Um, but I I think it's so interesting to see that as we're moving online, we're realizing that things, things need to be accessible. Um, and I think some of the larger tech companies like Google and Microsoft and Facebook are more agile to be able to handle some of that feedback. And I think some of the other tech companies are kind of getting up to speed. Um, it does break my heart to see that that there is a very high failure rate around, you know, I, I see you noted here around adoption or accessibility. And so it's one of those things, right? I mean, for any, for any startups, right, if there's a lack of product market fit, it's going to fail. I think what's interesting is when I first started Diversability we had no business model it was just how can I host these meetups how can I host these events that are kind of like meetups and what ended up happening was I think as a result of you know some first or second degree connections seeing the events that we were having then they wanted they then they asked us if they could value disability lived experience and bring that into their environment so our first paying client was the New York Public Library who wanted to better understand how different patrons who had different types of disabilities navigated going to the library or how they thought about that and that's when we realized like oh Someone, someone is actually willing to put some monetary value on this. And this is something we talk about a lot in disability as well as like, how can we value disability expertise and the fact that your lived experience is worth dollars. Um, but all of that said, I think, I think as people develop technology, how are you including the disability community? Are they actually hired into, you know, as product managers and I think there's a role at Google called, I think it's called like a diversity product evangelist and what the person in that role is hired to do, and I may need to, I may need to correct what that job title is. What that person is hired to do is they are, they are tasked with looking at whatever product is being built through the lens of different underrepresented groups and, and challenge those assumptions. And the fact that Google has a role like that, it was like, ooh, how you know, how can I sign up for something like that? But I think that that's really important, right? Because part of this is like, no one is deliberately trying to, no one is intentionally trying to exclude, right? But if you are unaware, then you're not gonna be building in these things from the start. And then they will end up being kind of these like band-aid tack-ons later on that just kind of make your product look tacky later on. Um, and so, so, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of smart cities, my, my friend, Dr. Victor, Victor Pineda, has been doing a lot around kind of a Cities for All initiative and getting local governments to connect with each other on disability policy. Most of the work he's doing right now is around pandemic response and, and disability inclusion or lack thereof in the response. But yeah, but he's been doing a lot around kind of really seeing how smart cities can be built through a disability-centered lens. So again, you know, I think my big message here is how early on can you hire disabled people into what you're building? And then also how, disi- and, and if, you, if you're not at that point, how involved can you have them, whether it's through user research and Sarin Madhapali and Brittany Dijon have like a specific uh, disability user product testing group on Facebook that they'll offer, that they'll you know, post people who are looking to do different user research. And and the user research, it's compensated as well, right? So again, how are you valuing disability expertise? It's, you know, I I think, I think even I am moving away from this let me pick your brain type of conversation to you know, for me, my work is trauma-informed. And so every single time I'm asked to talk about disability through my own personal lens, I am tapping in a place that is a little bit softer, that is a little bit, that does touch on, you know, an emotional part of my story as well. So, so yeah, so um, I believe the Remarkable Accelerator in Australia is still around and doing well. Um, yes. I, and I, I've had a friend participate in the Accelerator You know, interestingly enough, it was it was in an old dream of mine to have a diversability accelerator or a diversability incubator. But I couldn't. Yeah. And 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 I think this is this is where where I I think about who is who is the audience I'm trying to cater to. If I created an accelerator program or an incubator program, is it for non-disabled people building assistive technologies or is it for disabled people building whatever they want? Right. So so just trying to figure out who, who that main target is. And then and then you come into this ecosystem again, which is you have a lot of disabled people who are building things that have nothing to do with disability. And I want to celebrate and support their businesses. And then and then you have a lot of non-disabled people who are being incredible allies and in trying to build assistive technologies or add an accessibility lens into the things that they're building. How can we make sure they're a part of the conversation as well? How can we keep this ecosystem healthy and moving?
0: Uh, yes. And uh, finishing the topic uh, of technology, I would love to share uh, my opinion about why technology in this field um, fail. I believe that one of the reasons uh, is because uh, teams in assistive technology try to use the same model as uh, typical uh, venture teams. Because if we uh, pick 500 startups, why combinator model, they always rely on the huge market that's bigger than uh, $50 million or $100 million. Uh, in most cases, some specific neuromuscular disorder, for instance, it's not a huge market initially. So we're just uh, beyond this typical approach. And it's not good. But at the same time, I see many cases then teams just uh, uh, go through crowdsourcing, crowdworking, uh, philanthropic money, and remarkable accelerator is uh, mostly funded from Australian uh, government uh, programs. So just a different approach. And I believe that it's a, one of the ways uh, to push assistive technology further, just maybe not uh, to be so focused on just uh, venture capital, but maybe other models, maybe even open open source, (laughs) crowdsourcing, and so on. Um, Okay. Uh, You mentioned that you have a friend uh, related to uh, smart cities. Basically, I had uh, many talks related to COVID-19 response recently as well. And I have a following question. Uh, You work... um, toward uh, to help people to realize what is diversity in disability among people with disability. But do you think what we need awareness projects for healthy people in order to realize what is people with disability are? Because you mentioned that disability, it's not sickness. It's uh, something different. So we need uh, more information, uh, open learning, awareness, across the whole society to actually bring the knowledge about this phenomena, what, what it exactly is with a neuromuscular disorder, with a visual impairment, how you should treat these people, how you should uh, live or co-create or uh, co-exist in workforce, in education. So uh, how do you think how you could uh, contribute this direction as well?
1: Sure, I I do want to comment one thing on kind of like market size and market dynamics. And I think one of the things that's interesting, right? I mean, if you look at the numbers, so disabled people are 1.3 billion. That's on par with the size of China, understanding that that does include a lot of different types of disabilities. And and so I think that, you know, in the inclusive design space, we often talk about designing for one to design for all. So even if you think about captions on video, I believe the numbers around 70 to 80% of video content is consumed without sound. So you may think that oh I'm adding captions to this video for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, but you're actually adding those captions for someone who, you know, doesn't have headphones on the subway and wants to wants to watch something or someone who's scrolling through like scrolling through their Facebook feed and would prefer just to, you know, get the high level conversation what's happening and so I think that we shouldn't really look at at it in terms of the market size is small because the market size is actually quite large and I oftentimes will talk about like accidental accessibility benefits of a lot of things so it's interesting because you know I um, so I can't use one of my arms right one of my arms is paralyzed but I can use a pizza cutter to also cut waffles And to also, you know, and so this pizza cutter actually has a lot of different purposes for me as someone who, you know, using a standard fork and knife doesn't really work, you know, so so yeah. And then uh, who is it? Rich Donovan has done a lot of research around um, the fact that globally disabled people have one, I believe it's control $1 trillion of uh, annual disposable income. And then if you include our family and friends that goes to 8 trillion. And so I think that w- we have a spending power. And if we bring our friends and families in who are our main allies, right. And we tell them, Hey, this company like actually isn't supporting this thing. What that is telling to, to companies that have a consumer front that like, Oh, we should cater this. If we actually want a slice of that $8 trillion pie, um, I think to answer your question, though, around kind of thinking through cities, getting non-disabled people involved, I mean, that's a big part of what we do at DiverseAbility as well. So, you know, when when we first started in 2009, the whole idea was how can we create a cross-disability movement, because I find that disability is very fragmented by type of disability. But how can we also create a movement that includes disabled and non-disabled people, which is what you see in our offline and our online spaces? Because I acknowledge that even though 1.3 billion people is a lot, our world is 7 billion people plus. You know, So we still need to bring in non-disabled people into the conversation. And, and so I think that it's less about Yeah, I think it's about giving more opportunities for disabled people to have the platforms to be able to share their experiences. Because the thing is, is that I cannot speak for everyone who has brachial plexus injuries, right? Some of us have acquired them from birth. I acquired mine in a traumatic car accident. Um, Some people acquire them uh, skydiving or motorcycles, you know, So oh, and uh, those happened in their 20s and mine happened when I was nine. So, so yeah, so I think a big part of it is like, how can we make sure that disabled people are at the table? One of the things, you know, so I'm based in San Francisco. One of the things that I am seeing is that we have this mayor's office on disability, which is led by a woman who's a wheelchair user. When I was living in New York, the New York the New York city mayor's office for people with disabilities also led by a disabled person. And so I think that to be able to have departments like that within cities, number one, super admirable, I hope more cities follow suit, but the fact that they are led by disabled people is helping to influence policy in that way. And so when I look at some of the initiatives that San Francisco has done around helping to better serve our disabled community here, it's really been in partnership with that mayor's office on disability. You know, it's not like there's this hierarchy and let's bring in this consultant for a short period of time. It's like, this is actually a part of our city staff. Like let's actually, and then she, she has the, the connections to, you know, more community outreach. So, so yeah, I mean, I think again, it kind of comes back to this thing of like, even in making, even if in how we're thinking about our cities and the future of what we want our world to look like, are disabled people actually at the table? And are and and hopefully it's not just one voice. Hopefully it's a choir of all these different people. Um, but whoever is in that role, hopefully has ingrained connections into the community that they serve as well. So so yeah, I mean I think a big part of it is you know as we think about what post-pandemic response may look like, I just want to make sure that disabled people are included because we are entering a new world where I'm not quite sure what things will look like. I'm not quite sure what large-scale events will look like or if I'm not quite sure what travel is going to look like, you know, so... um, And and this is just me coming at it through a just normal societal lens. What if we add a disability lens? You know, what will disability travel look like now? You know, what 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 will employment look like now through a disability lens? Employment was already bad. Now we have an enormous number of jobless claims of people who have been furloughed or lost their job because of what's happened. How can we make sure that as we open up new opportunities in this new economy, we're including disabled people in the decision making?
0: Uh, yes, um, a few years ago, uh, I was uh, once asked about what uh, we will see in terms of technology in the next few years, and I said uh, maybe we will see the future when half of society stream video games on YouTube and another half watch it. And I believe <laughs> currently we are very close to this reality. Okay, I have a question uh, regarding disability policies. Uh, as I know you're involved in uh, some uh, policy making work in San Francisco, uh, you assist some work, uh, or you have some role in this uh, um, uh, direction. What kind of change uh, would you like to uh, bring uh, to governmental level? What kind of a problems maybe you face? And uh, what, uh, what could you uh, bring from your experience in this field?
1: Sure. So I, I serve on the San Francisco mayor's disability council. We are more of an advisory body to, to the mayor's office and the board of supervisors. But I think for us, our, our current areas of focus are around affordable housing and employment. And, you know, housing is, is just a very sensitive issue within San Francisco. The system is quite complex. And then employment, I think, globally um, is is an issue as well. And and so I think for me personally, I just want, you know, employment is something that I have had the privilege of having, you know, as a disabled person. So I did work on finance. I was involved in the corporate world up until 2017 um, and startup world up until 2017 before moving into advocacy work full time. Yeah, but for me, it's again, how can we make sure that whatever policies are coming out do have a disability lens on them? How co- representation is so important. Um, but I also, you know, I also want San Francisco to be a place that our disabled residents feel proud to be here. So when I think of what makes me proud to be in San Francisco, I think it's amazing that we, that first of all, we do have a mayor's disability council that consists of Um, disabled people and parents of disabled kids and other people who are peripherally involved, it makes me proud that we are going to be opening the first disability cultural and community center, municipally funded, the first in the country, which I assume is also the world. If you've had a chance to watch Crip Camp, The 504 protest took place at the federal building in San Francisco, the longest longest non-violent occupation of a building, which led to change, which led to the ADA. Uh, There's just so much history here that makes me proud to be a San Franciscan. And those all come through a, a disability lens, right? And so, how can we have more, more things like that happening? And this year, 2020, is the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. One of the things that I have drafted up is seeing if we can get July to be declared as Disability Pride Month. And disability pride is this phrase around asserting your own self-worth as a disabled person because of your disability identity, just pride in your disability identity. and. And so, so yeah. So on the one hand, it's like I know that we there's a lot of work to be done around employment, around healthcare, around social isolation, around housing. But there's a lot that we can also celebrate too around disability pride and identity and culture. And so, how can we make sure we're balancing that in our work as well?
0: Uh, and finally, um, since you're involved in this field so many years, uh, what would you say people who Uh, currently have some kind of disability, uh, feel lost, but would love to uh, find uh, himself or herself, um, become a leader in her or his community, maybe become an inventor, um, despite of any problems, challenges, biases, what would you say?
1: Sure. I I think on the one hand, I will say that a big part of my journey has been about self-compassion and self-forgiveness. And I think that by coming into, so I recently heard a definition that forgiveness is giving up the hope that thing that the past could have been any different. I think it's from Oprah or Oprah said it and she heard it from someone else. But I've been thinking a lot about that, right? It's because we spend a lot of time dwelling on the could haves like, oh, like I wish my arm, you know, wasn't this way, or I wish this traumatic thing hadn't happened. But the thing is they happened, and I think that once I was able to embrace them as part of my narrative, it actually felt quite liberating and I want to say it is so liberating to be yourself and I think that for a lot of us who you know you know my arm my arm looks different my my entire shoulder and and my body has developed differently because of of the form of paralysis that I have and I wore, I used to wear long sleeves all the time, but once I started, once I started acknowledging, like, this is my only body. (laughs) Um, it's a hot day outside. Like I want to wear a t-shirt. And then when I realized like, Oh, like I wasn't, I wasn't harmed by having people see my arm. (laughs) And, and I, and I think it's kind of like, it's almost, and I get a lot of questions from other people who have, you know, who have bodies who may look different, who ask, you know, how do I, how do I become more comfortable with showing it or putting it up in pictures? And I'm just like, sometimes you just have to take those little steps. Right. And I, and I call this broadening your window of tolerance, because what you're doing is you're, you're, you're matching your physiological response with what's actually happening. So the fact that like, I'm wearing a, like a sleeveless dress today and like nothing, nothing is happening to me. (laughs) Um, it, it, it has honestly taken me a while to get at that point. So, so I just want to say like self-compassion, self forgiveness, kind of like taking those little steps to show the world who you are can actually be really liberating. And then the second thing I'll say is that you are a leader. Like, it's not like you woke up one day and you said like, like I'm not like, I, I think when we say that we're not a leader or we say we aspirationally want to be, it's like everyone who follows us on social media, like we are exerting a type of leadership every single time we post, every single time we post, we're saying, this is what I care about. This is what I'm thinking about. You know, like this is, this is how I'm showing the world who I am. Um, so I think that understanding that we kind of have these, like, I call these like micro advocacy, we have these like micro leadership things that we can do. Sometimes it's just liking a post or sharing a post or sharing an article. And, and the thing is it's like, um, and I'm gonna be having a conversation on allyship a little bit later, but everyone who is in my first degree sphere like knows what I'm about, right? So they know that when you meet me, I'm gonna be talking about disability inclusion. I'm gonna be talking about hate crimes against Asian. I'm Asians right now, I'm gonna be talking about like what it's like to be a woman in this world. But the thing is, it's like, what if my male friend shared my post? The people who follow him may look very different from the people who follow me. So to the extent of knowing that we kind of have this like pay it forward ripple effect, I think is really powerful. Um, And then I think the last thing I'll say is give yourself permission to fail. I think we are so terrified of failure. And one of the things I'm grateful for, for, yeah, I'm grateful for my disability experience is that it taught me that I can't do some things the same way that other people do. I needed to fail to then figure out how to do it in my own way. And a lot of the things I do look like kind of weird. Like I paint my nails with my toes, you know, like I type with one hand. And um, and I needed to go through those. I don't. And I don't know if I'd really call them failures, but like I needed to go through those like, moments of adversity or moments when things were hard in order to really come out and transcend. And so I actually think you know, now in this period of COVID-19, all of us are experiencing collective trauma, right? And trauma is anything that overwhelms our ability to cope, right? No, we've never seen anything like this before in our lifetime. And so we're figuring out how to cope, but, but and we're failing a lot, You know, if we're looking at policies or how certain cities or even our administration is dealing with things and pivoting and learning how to go, but we need to fail in order to know what success looks like.